I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We come to our last uh, introduction to this book. So if you're visiting with us, I, I'm sorry this is a little bit unique because we're setting the groundwork as we read through Revelation, um, kind of talking about the, the structure today. Um, last week we looked at the four major interpretive approaches to Revelation, um, and we concluded that they really all have something to contribute to our reading, and so we we come at this at this book with a with an eclectic view, an eclectic interpretation uh, that combines you know the the preterist, the, the futurist, the historicist, and the idealist views. Um, it takes kind of the the strengths of each view and hopefully understands all the weaknesses and and discards those weaknesses. Um, of course, everyone believes their view is accurate. Um, but this morning, we, we have time to consider the various, uh, we don't have time to consider all the various outlines of Revelation. Many have been proposed. But among those who hold to an, an eclectic approach to Revelation, there is kind of a general consensus, a general agreement. Um, so Dennis Johnson, he portrays the importance of the structure of Revelation with an analogy of putting together a puzzle. I don't know if your family is, is like ours. We, we, a couple times a year, we'll pull out a, a, a big, huge puzzle. We'll set up the table and, and we'll spend a week, kind of just throughout the week, spending time putting it all together. Um, now, we would not be as, as committed as, uh, to the rules of putting together a puzzle as like a hardcore jigsaw puzzle enthusiasts would be. They, they would say that looking at the picture on the lid is cheating, right? Now, we, we enjoy looking at the, the picture. It helps us get through that puzzle. But even, even those hardcore enthusiasts use one tactic that's just kind of, a, it, it sets a, a frame around the puzzle, right? You've got to look for the pieces that have a straight edge, those pieces that have a straight edge inform you that that's the border, right? That's the frame of the puzzle. And so no one, you know, no one puts together a puzzle without doing that first, at least initially. Um, so the, the, the structure of Revelation provides that, that framework for us so that once we understand that, once we have the boundaries in place, we can begin to look at the details with a little more clarity, right, and following along that structure. Um, and, and the structure itself should be something that the, that the text presents, right? Not a structure that we bring to Revelation and we, make, we cram Revelation into that structure. We want the structure to be evident as we you know, do a, a scan of the book. So here's the argument that the eclectic interpretation would make for the book of Revelation. We would say that the structural frame of Revelation is the seven cycles of recapitulation. And again, recapitulation is just another word for repetition, for a, a recapping of an event that's already been described. So it, re, it goes back and it revisits those. So we believe there are seven cycles of recapitulation which cover the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ. Now, this would be opposed to what is what uh, those who see a mostly chronological order. Now, if you if you have your handout, you'll see there I put that summary sentence there at the top, 
And then at the bottom, you'll have um, an outline of representation of what a futurist or a historicist would see between Revelation 4 through 16. You've got the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls happening in chronological order, only overlapping between you know, at 7 and 1. Right? The, the seventh seal contains the first trumpet, and then the seventh trumpet contains the first bowl. Okay? So I'm hoping to show this morning a, a different, an alternative reading to that. We would see much more overlapping between these chapters, not a chronological progression, but a continual going back, a cycling back around to the beginning of the present age and, and working through to uh, his second coming. So I'll explain that as we um, get further along. But, but I just want to point out, this view is not exclusive to like an eclectic view, this, it, this structuring of Revelation. In fact, um, there are futurists who hold to this view. Beasley Murray um, being one of the commentators you can read who is a futurist that believes all of Revelation contains uh, seven cycles of recapitulation. I don't know if he, he has the, the ex- exact seven cycles, but he definitely sees a continual recapitulation, uh, re- reviewing the, and recapping events um, throughout the book. So it's something that, that even futurists can find in the text. And, and it's, I, when I read Revelation, I don't really see how you can read it any other way. So I'm hoping to convince you of that this morning. So before we read the first three verses, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of sitting under its teaching and to be instructed by this book. I pray that you would help us to follow along the argument that's being made in this book of Revelation, that we would be comforted by the text, that we would be reminded of the spiritual conflict that is currently taking place. Lord, we see, we see with our eyes physical conflict all the time. And yet beneath that, underneath that, in a, in a very real sense, there's a spiritual warfare that's taking place. And so, Lord, help us to be aware of that spiritual warfare and help us to gird ourselves with the armor of God, that we would, that we would be prepared to fight against the devil and the flesh and this world and, and to persevere through times of persecution and trial all the way to the end. Lord, and may you be glorified as we do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amen. This is God's word. Well, a strong case has been made that Revelation follows the same structural patterns that you find in Isaiah, in Daniel, in Ezekiel, and Zechariah, right? That they also contain images of recapitulation. <clears throat> of events that are, that are recapped and summarized throughout the text. So Revelation is heavily dependent upon the Old Testament, especially other apocalyptic or prophetic books. So before we look at the structure in more detail, I do want to consider its dependence on the Old Testament, <clears throat> the importance of the Old Testament 
and in, in order to understand Revelation. There are um, somewhere between three to 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. There's 404 verses, and so just about every verse has an allusion to the Old Testament in some way or, or form. The Old Testament permeates the whole book. And so in order to interpret the symbols correctly, we really have to be aware of these allusions. John usually is alluding to either the Psalms, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are his primary sources that he, he refers to. Um, but in fact, the only books that he doesn't allude to at some point in Revelation would be Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai. Those are the only three. So 36 out of 39 books are alluded to at some point in the book of Revelations. The allusions contain modifications from the original Hebrew text or the Greek um, form of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Those sources are, are modified by John and, and alluded to, right? Uh, very rarely is there a direct quote of them, but they're, they're, they're clear allusions to these texts. So he does, uh, he does not appear to depend upon like a single manuscript. He doesn't just simply have the Septuagint uh, at, at his side as he's writing the book of Revelation, constantly alluding to the same language of the Septuagint. That's not true. You, you really find his allusions um, being from the original Hebrew as well as that, those Greek and then some uh, um, other sources. He, he doesn't just have a single manuscript. He generally combines elements, in fact, from several different passages to match the theme or the subject that he's addressing in his vision. So one significant example of this is John's frequent allusions to passages that are specifically about Israel in the Old Testament, but that he applies to the church in Revelation. For instance, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. And he calls the nation of Israel the kingdom of priests. But in Revelation, there are uh, two places where he calls the church right, a priesthood. In Revelation 1, verse 6, and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. Right? So he's calling the church priests. And he's writing here, as we'll see very clearly in, the, in chapters 2 and 3, he's writing to Gentile churches in Asia Minor, seven churches there that are predominantly made up of, of Gentiles. And he's saying he's calling them priests, right? So this is, this is him taking a, a language from the Old Testament, Exodus 19.6, and applying it to the church, which he sees filled in chapter 7, verse 9, with, with members from every tribe, people, and nation. Okay, so you have every tribe, people, and nation in Revelation 7, 9 referenced as belonging to the church. Again, in Revelation 1, verse 7, Look down at that verse with me. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. All the tribes of the earth. But that is a, an illusion. In fact, some of that phrasing is directly from uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which only concerned the tribes of Israel. Right? So Zechariah is speaking to the tribes of Israel, and he says, all the tribes of, of Israel will wail on account of him, or, or it's a, an allusion to that text. 
But here he, he applies that to all the tribes of the earth. Okay. This occurs so often throughout the book that one scholar, Van Hoy, suggests, he, he, he uses the phrase universalization as one of John's categories of interpretation. So John takes passages that are related to Israel and he universalizes them to refer to the church, which is true Israel or the Israel of God. Uh, you get that language from Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. So consider this for a moment. Remember where John is. He's been exiled to Patmos, to an island. In all likelihood, he does not have access to scrolls, right, to, to his collection of Old Testament scrolls. So what does this mean? His writing, Revelation, reflects a memory of the Old Testament that's combined with his divine inspiration, right? He is receiving a revelation from God, and then as he writes that revelation down, the language he uses to describe what he saw is biblical all throughout. It's, he, he knew the Old Testament, all of it. He knew it all, and he was constantly alluding to it as he was writing his revelation. Of course, this is inspired by the Spirit as well. He's, he's being filled with the Spirit as he, as he writes. He's, he's seeing a vision from God in the, in the order that God gives it to him, and he's de- describing that. But the language is Bible. Right? He, he describes what he saw in, vivid, uh, in this vivid vision, and what he wrote was filled with biblical language that's found in 36 of the 39 Old Testament books. Charles Spurgeon uh, quipped about John Bunyan. He said, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. It was just, if you read John Bunyan, especially if you read a version that includes all of his allusions to scripture, you see it in almost every sentence he's alluding to scripture in his allegory, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So, so that's what Spurgeon was commenting on. Well, how much more true that would, be of, would that be of John? Right? He, he knew his Bible, and so should we. Something else that informs the structure is the importance of repetition. Um, Hendrickson notes the, the repetition of, of the content that we find in the book. He sees seven parallel sections, and I've put that down there for you. It's a little bit adjusted because I, I, I've... I'm, I'm taking several different scholars and their views, um, but Hendrickson's kind of the beginning. He's sort of the foundation of this outline. Uh, but his, he saw seven parallel sections, each section covering the entire gospel age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Each section contains promises to the church, references to the judgment of the world, and visions or comments regarding that final judgment or the great consummation. Most, most of these cycles, ha- they conclude with either a reference to the final judgment or the final consummation. In some cases, it, they're, they're both in it, in each cycle. And so in other words, we should not expect a chronological order. If you see a final judgment happening at each point in Revelation, it's clearly not describing a chronological order. Instead, we should see cyclical order. Instead of drawing a, a timeline from chapter 1 through 22, 
we should be looking for key phrases and thematic shifts that point to that recapitulation. Okay, so don't think of a verbatim repetition. It's not as if he, he says one thing, chapters one through three, and then he just repeats himself again, and then he repeats himself again. Of course, he's using different language to describe the same scene or the same events that he sees, okay? So it's, it's, like, uh, it's like movies with, with four different camera angles, right? And, and, you're, and every angle gives you some different dis- description of the same, same time period, the same event. Okay, so we should be looking for those key phrases that give us that different angle, that different view. The order within each cycle doesn't necessarily follow chronological order either, right? And I think that's true even where you find seals and trumpets and bowls that are numbered. They very well could all be happening simultaneously. But what is clear is that John is describing the order in which he saw those events, right? In his vision, he's witnessing one thing, and then he sees another thing. It doesn't mean that that thing over here wasn't happening at the same time as this event, but he's looking here, and then he turns and sees the other thing happening. So they could very well be happening at the same time. It doesn't require us to read, even within the cycle itself, a chronological order. And I I would just point to a couple of references here, like chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. It's saying, after after what he saw previously, after this, I looked, and I saw something else. In chapter 5, verse 1, again, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Chapter 6. Uh, I'm sorry, actually, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners. Uh, verse 9, after this, I looked and behold. So do you see how that makes sense? He's, he's describing what he sees. That doesn't necessarily mean that what he's describing is happening one after the other, like that one thing is waiting till something ends before it begins. So uh, let me just point to a few examples here. And, I, and we may not get through this, this whole thing today, but let's consider just a few examples of that cyclical order. Hendrickson contends that the time references in the third and fourth section, which in your outline there is chapters 8 through 14, right? There's time references in chapters um, 11 and 12. Uh, so go to chapter 11, verse 2. He believes that these time references are parallel. So Revelation chapter 11, verse 2 says, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So you have 42 months to trample the holy city. That's taking place while the two witnesses, which represent the church, In verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the 42 months is equivalent to the 1,260 days. I did the math, so I know I'm right here. 1,260 divided by 30 is 42. Okay, 42 months. It's the same number, just using different language to describe the same time period. In the next section, in chapter 12, verse 6, we find 
a different scene. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Again, 42 months. So in, um, in 1214, you find again, and the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time. Now that comes from Daniel and, and most scholars all agree that's a three and a half year period. Now, if you, you can do the math, 42 months is three and a half years. Okay, so all of these references are referring to the same time period, the same, same period of time, and they're all happening in a parallel fashion, right? They're not, it's not like he's talking about three and a half years here, followed by three and a half years, followed by another three and a half years. It's the 42 months, the 1,260 days, and the, and the times, time, and a half a time, all referring to the same period of events that run parallel to each other. So this means that the trumpets that are sounded at the same, um, in, in section three, are happening at the same time as the spiritual warfare that is being described in section four. And that would make sense. Trumpets and war oftentimes go together, right? They're, they're declaring this warfare that's taking place. Now, we can go even further. Um, the, we, we do see not only a parallel pattern there in section three and four, but I want to show you a parallel pattern between the trumpets and the bowls, okay? So the bowls can, are described in section, uh, in chapters 15 through 16, specifically chapter 16. So put a finger in chapter 16 and then go back to the beginning of the trumpets in chapter 8, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. These, these locusts do destruction upon the earth. Uh, oh, sorry, I was reading chapter 9, verse 7. That was the problem. I'm like, I don't see earth in that. Okay, 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet affects the earth, chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Okay, The second trumpet, chapter 8, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Chapter 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Very clear parallels happening here. What you find if you go through, the, through each trumpet and bowl, you have earth, sea, rivers, sun, hell, Euphrates, and judgment. All of those things parallel descriptions happening at the same time, the trumpet and the bowl that's being poured out. So the details that are found in each section of Revelation, um, there's, there's added description to those events, right? They're seeing it from a different angle. They're seeing more of the destruction that's taking place. Whereas one angle only saw a portion, a partial judgment. The later 
views and angles are describing the greater detail of that same kind of judgment that's taking place at Christ's return, at the final, at, the, at his second coming. So the, repeti- the repetition is made apparent by that thematic, those thematic and literary clues. I'm going to have to to wrap it up here, we'll revisit. What I would like to do um, next week is just to, to give you a, a basic overview from each of those cycles, to kind of go through the cycle to, to show you how, yes, once again, we're coming to a final judgment. Once again, we see final judgment in each cycle, or uh, we see a final consummation. We see the, the glorious um, reign of the saints in heaven. So you can do a little bit of research on your own using the, the outline there. But let me just um, close with this. There are many connections between each section, but, but probably the most in, uh, prominent parallels are found in the first and last section. Kind of wraps up the, the whole book with this inclusio, which is kind of like putting bookends on the book. You've got the same themes that took place in, in the prologue and in the greeting and in this vision of the Son of Man. You find once again with the epilogue, and the, the, the blessings given to the saints and a warning to those who would, who would um, not hear, right? Who, or who would change anything that is revealed in the book. So the opening section contains several promises to the church to, to persevere through persecution. We'll find that over and over again in the letters to the churches in chapter two and in chapter three. But each one of those promises finds fulfillment in that last section, in the new heavens and new earth. So here's the, the promise to us. It's when God brings this imperfection, this time where we anticipate his coming, right, where we are longing for his return, this imperfect anticipation becomes a perfect consummation at the end in the book of Revelation. So what that means is now is the day of salvation, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe and, and to persevere throughout this church age the, between the, the first and second coming of Christ. Because as we read in verse three, the time is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this worship service. We thank you for just the, the blessings of celebrating the sacrament of of baptism, of of witnessing um, someone coming to the Lord's table for the first time. Lord, we are are grateful for your your blessings. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you for the revelation, even the, with all of um, the challenges that it brings to read this revelation that you gave to your servant, John. Lord, we, we pray that rather than bringing us utter confusion, that it would strengthen us, that it would comfort us time and time again by your gospel, that we would know that, that you will be victorious. That we do not need to fear man. We do not need to fear the one who can kill the body. But that we can, we can trust in you. And we can know that you will save us and, and, and redeem us and bring us to that perfect and final consummation that we see pictured at the end. 
where all of the promises are, find their fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth, where we can rejoice and celebrate with no more death, no more pain, no more tears. Lord, what a glorious picture we have that awaits us. May that be our comfort and joy. May we be reminded of what we've been saved from, that we would take to heart the warning passages that we come across time and time again in this book as well. And may we respond with repentance and faith. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.